Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Preventing Gun Violence, Legal Strategies and Remedies, introduces the new Minnesota Law Gun Violence Prevention Clinic as the first legal clinic in the nation to focus on promoting gun violence prevention through strategic litigation. The event features expert panelists discussing legal strategies and remedies in preventing gun violence in Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota. The panel includes Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, Christopher Renz, a prosecuting attorney with the Metropolitan Airports Commission, and Professor Megan Walsh, the director of the Gun Violence Prevention Clinic. Introductory remarks are provided by Gary W. Jenkins, the Dean and William S. Patty, Professor of Law, and Timothy Daly, director of the Joyce Foundation Gun Violence Prevention and Justice Reform Program. This event was recorded on March 13th, 2023. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon, everyone. Come on, there we go, a little energy. Uh, I, I think most of you know me, but I'm Gary Jenkins. I'm the Dean of the Law School, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to the University of Minnesota Law School and to our panel today, uh, Preventing Gun Violence, Legal Strategies, and Remedies. Uh, today is actually a celebration. It's a celebration of our newest legal clinic, the Gun Violence Prevention Clinic, which is led by visiting assistant clinical professor Megan Walsh. And I want to begin by thanking her for her vision and for her leadership. Uh, and, but, uh, but that's not all. She is a terrific member of our community, a terrific teacher. Uh, so let's give her a round of applause. But in addition to vision and leadership, clinics take resources. And as many of you know, this clinic has come together thanks to the support of two generous and highly impactful foundations, the Joyce Foundation and the McKnight Foundation. Joyce is a nationally recognized uh, leading foundation that was founded in 1948. It's headquartered in Chicago that works in critical public policy areas in the Great Lakes region. The McKnight Foundation was established in 1953, and it's a Minnesota-based family foundation that advances a more just, creative, and abundant future where people and the planet thrive. Uh, as some of you know about my background, I was a grant maker uh, earlier in my career, uh, so I have long admired both uh, Joyce and McKnight, so this is a real treat for me uh, to, uh, to have uh, these two really outstanding and, and well-recognized foundations support us. Um, you know, gun violence prevention work, the belief in uh, the transformational power of legal clinical education, not everyone gets those things. Not everyone, uh, funders, are supporting these things. So Joyce and McKnight uh, are really wonderful supporters and innovative thinkers, and I want to thank them as well. So we're joined today by Tim Daly, the director of the Joyce Foundation's Gun Violence Prevention and Justice Reform Program. Tim also serves as chair of the Fund for a Safer Future, which is a collaborative uh, group of 30 foundations and donors supporting efforts to prevent gun violence nationwide. He also chairs the Gun Violence uh, the Gun Policy Action Committee of the Partnership for Safe and Peaceful Communities, which is a donor collaborative focused on reducing gun violence in Chicago. 
Prior to joining the foundation in 2019, Tim served as a senior staffer on Capitol Hill for two uh, different congresspersons. He was a managing director at the Center for American Progress. He is a lawyer. Uh, we like that around here. Uh, <laughs> he has degrees from the University of Maryland and his law degree from Georgetown. Uh, our, um, our Gun, you'll hear from Tim in a minute, but um, I, I just want to say that our gun violence prevention clinic, uh, which was just launched this spring, is already making a huge impact. Um, as the first in-house law clinic of its kind in the nation, its focus, it focuses on promoting gun violence prevention through strategic litigation in partnership with student attorneys. In addition to supporting and litigating cases that help reduce injuries, death, and trauma resulting from gun violence, the clinic also promotes uh, uh, law student engagement in firearms law, the Second Amendment, uh, it establishes a home for gun violence prevention litigation in the Great Lakes area. It grows the pool of litigation expertise and legal resources available for Second Amendment and gun violence prevention matters. What's more, the clinic also partners with important institutions, such as the Minnesota Attorney General's Office, uh, when it comes to Second Amendment cases, and on affirmative litigation brought by the AG to reduce gun violence in Minnesota. And we are really thrilled to partner with the AG's office on this effort. And so, it's my honor to introduce our outstanding lineup of presenters. We are honored to hear from their unique perspectives to understand better the issues and opportunities surrounding the prevention of gun violence uh, today. So first, we welcome Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, class of 90. After graduating from this law school, A.G. Ellison spent 16 years as an attorney specializing in civil rights and defense law. He then served in the Minnesota House of Representatives and was ultimately elected to the U.S. Congress in 2007, representing Minnesotas and the Minnesotans in the U.S. House of Representatives for 12 years. In 2019, he was sworn in as Minnesota's 30th Attorney General. We also have Chris Renz here, class of 01. Chris is a partner and shareholder at Chestnut uh, Cambrone. He also serves as the chief prosecuting attorney for Metropolitan Airports Commission, which we will uh, soon hear about. And they actually have a lot of uh, gun-related matters uh, that, um, that the Airport Commission has to deal with. Um, he's been uh, associated with his alma mater as well. Uh, at the law school, he has taught as a legal writing instructor since 2003. So let's give Chris a round of applause. <laughs> And finally on the panel is Professor Megan Walsh. I've mentioned her before. She's the faculty director for our gun violence prevention clinic, serves um, as a visiting assistant clinical professor. Prior to joining the law school, she was an attorney at Everytown Law, where she worked on Second Amendment litigation uh, defending uh, 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 cases that were brought uh, before uh, uh, courts in various regions um, related to the Second Amendment. So um, before I turn it over to our panel, I want to turn the podium over for some brief comments to Tim Daly, who I introduced earlier from the Joyce Foundation, and then we'll hear from our panel. Thank you. Thank <clears throat> you. 
Uh, thank you, Dean Jenkins, for the warm introduction for all of us, and it's great to see um, everyone here today. Um, as the dean mentioned, my name is Tim Daly. I'm the director of the Gun Violence Prevention and Justice Reform Program for the Joyce Foundation. Um, and as the dean mentioned, uh, we are based in Chicago, uh, and across all of our program areas, we are focused on trying to advance policies and uh, practices to advance racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. And among the programs that we've had, uh, for the last 30 plus years, we've had one particular program that has been focused on gun violence prevention and justice reform. And the goal of that program, as you might imagine, is to uh, try and support uh, the development of safe and just communities here in the Great Lakes region. And I don't need to tell all of you um, how challenging that has been um, in recent years. We have seen a record number of gun deaths uh, across this country, uh, but we are committed uh, through our resources and whatever we can do uh, to try and end that. Um, and to that end, um, several years ago, when we were updating our strategy and figuring out where we would invest our resources, um, it occurred to our board and our leadership um, that Second Amendment litigation was a key component, or should be a key component, of any effort to try and reduce gun violence. And it was then that we committed to uh, investing funds to defend um, evidence-informed uh, policies that could uh, reduce gun violence, and to use our resources to challenge um, those extreme gun laws that might, in fact, we think, uh, or the evidence suggests, lead to more gun violence. And it was in that spirit uh, that we were delighted to partner with the McKnight Foundation um, just a year ago uh, to support what we believe to be the first uh, clinic of its, of its kind uh, to be able to do both of those things. And as the dean mentioned, there's so many benefits that could come from a clinic of this type. One, we could really start to develop the scholarship on an area of the law that really is, for the most part, undiscovered compared to its peers. We can build a pipeline of young attorneys like yourselves to focus on this issue. And third, we could add capacity immediately on the cases that are being litigated this very day, like with the Attorney General. And so we are so excited and thrilled to be supporting this effort and to be joined uh, with the Attorney General today. And I'll also point out, we also have another guest who just came in, and, and Richard, I just want to thank you too. Richard Karlbaum is the Deputy Chief of Staff for Governor Walls, who also played an important role in helping. So thank you all for your interest and dedication to this issue. And Megan, thank you for your leadership in putting all of this together. Uh, but for your creativity and expertise, uh, we would not be here today. So thank you, and I look forward to the panel's discussion. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'm going to be moderating the panel. I'm so thankful to be joined here by my friend Chris Renz, um, the Attorney General. And I just want to echo what the Dean said. Um, my students, my friends, my colleagues, anyone who ever talks to me ever has heard that this clinic is my dream. And I am so thankful to the Joyce Foundation and the McKnight Foundation for really making this a possibility for all of us here at Minnesota. I also, of course, want to thank Dean Jenkins for his wonderful support, um, taking on a controversial issue as a law school um, is a challenge and it's one that he has been supportive every step of the way. Um, I'm so thankful to my students, some of whom are here today um, for taking a chance on a brand new clinic that's never been done anywhere in the country. Um, and so thankful to the Attorney General for his support and his partnership. He has a phenomenal team who are working with my students, um, and he himself is an innovator in this field, both in his role as Attorney General and the People's Lawyer, um, and in his previous life as my former congressman, where he participated in a sit-in on Congress floor um, after his mom sent him a note, I want you down on the floor. <laughs> I was going anyway. <laughs> I'm going to start by giving us a little bit of context for where we are in this moment in time, both in the law and also just where we are in terms of gun violence in our society. All of us here today know that gun violence truly is a public health crisis in our country. We lose over 110 people each day to gun violence, um, homicides, police violence, suicides by gun, unintentional shootings, more than 200 people a day are injured with a gun, many of whom have lifelong injuries. And then, of course, that doesn't even capture the trauma that so many of us feel by existing in this country that is awash with guns and gun violence. Um, people who witness gun violence, people who end up in lockdowns, like in recent shootings at the University of Virginia or Michigan State. Um, 
are just parents having to struggle with, do I bring my, my children to a parade or a movie theater? Um, strikingly, gun violence is now the number one cause of death for children between the ages of one and 17, according to the CDC. And behind these statistics, we're seeing a huge increase in gun sales recently. In 2020, during the pandemic, we had the highest record of annual gun sales at 22.8 million guns in one year alone. And the following year in America, we sold tw uh, 20 million guns. And at the same time that gun sales are rising, we're also seeing gun violence rise year over year. Um, in St. Paul, there was a record number of homicides in 2021. And although homicide numbers did go down in 2022, the number of gun injuries and gun violence situations increased. And Minneapolis reported the highest number of homicides in 20 years in 2021, and just one shy of the record of all time. And against this context, we've seen radical changes in how courts are addressing gun laws. For most of our history, courts treated the Second Amendment as protecting only a collective right as part of militia service. And this understanding was so profound and accepted that I never studied a Second Amendment course. I never studied a Second Amendment case in law school. It was fundamentally accepted that the Second Amendment protected a collective right. And then in 2008, the Supreme Court heard and decided the case District of Columbia versus Heller. And for the first time, the Heller decision was um, the decision that found that the Second Amendment did, prevent, or did protect an individual right to keep and bear arms. And the court held that the core of that right was self-defense. And that right to protect yourself with a firearm um, was most acute in the home. And so Heller's decision involved a ban on handguns in the home, and the court overturned it. Now, that was a very different court than the one we have now. It was a 5-4 decision. And Justice Scalia wrote the opinion, but to get that fifth vote, he needed Justice Kennedy's vote. And so in order to secure Justice Kennedy's vote, he incorporated language in the Heller opinion that really tempered the right. So for instance, some of the things that he said was, the Second Amendment does not protect a right to carry any weapon anywhere at any time. And he said that long-standing prohibitions in the law, including prohibiting firearms in sensitive places like schools or government buildings, or long-standing regulations saying that felons and the severely mentally ill are not allowed to possess and purchase firearms. All of those are still constitutional. So even though Heller was a really core decision and fundamentally changed the way that we look at the Second Amendment, the real practical impact of Heller was not as significant as you might think. Following Heller for 10 years, the Supreme Court did not take another gun violence case, another Second Amendment case, and courts across the country held that gun laws across the country were constitutional. So the idea that the Second Amendment and reasonable gun regulation could exist was fundamentally accepted by courts. And so lots of gun laws, very, very few gun laws were ever overturned. The vast majority of gun laws were held constitutional under Heller. And then last summer, the Supreme Court issued the decision, New York Rifle and Pistol versus Bruin. And that fundamentally changed where we're at today. Um, That case involved a challenge to New York's permit to carry system. And you might have seen movie or TV plots. Um, you might know that in New York City, it's very difficult to get a permit to carry a firearm. Um, and New York's law is a little different than most of the permit laws in the country. Um, in New York, you had to show that you had a specialized need to carry in public. So you might have had a specialized need for self-defense. For instance, a police officer one time here told me that um, when Minnesota had a law like this in the past, somebody who was protecting jewelry as part of their job and um, needed a firearm for that kind of work might have gotten a permit to carry, but the vast majority of citizens didn't have a specialized need for self-defense with a firearm. With the mark makeup of the justices on the bench today, everyone knew when this case was accepted that the court was gonna expand gun rights in the country, but we didn't know how far they were going to go. And of course, when the opinion came out, the court did strike down the New York law. They held that law to be unconstitutional. They said for the first time that individuals have a right to carry a firearm in public. And um, they struck down the New York law and said it was unconstitutional because there is a second amendment right to carry your firearm. You don't you aren't allowed to, be, to have a government say you have to show a specialized need for self-defense to get that type of permit. Now, if the 
opinion had kept itself to that holding, it would have been fairly similar to Heller and that it wouldn't have had a huge impact. There are only six states in the District of Columbia that had laws similar to what New York's had that was struck down. But what the court did in Bruin was it fundamentally changed the way that government can regulate firearms. So the court changed the test that courts are using now to evaluate when a government law regulating firearms is constitutional. And it said that what we have to do, what courts have to do, is look to what the understanding of the right was at the time the Second Amendment was adopted and at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted and then the Second Amendment was again applied against the states. And so how we do that is by looking at what laws were in existence at the time. So right now what courts are doing is they're not examining, does a gun law work? Does a gun law save lives? What they're looking at is, is there a historical analog from the time the Second Amendment was adopted, from the time the 14th Amendment was adopted, that can be similar enough to the regulation to show that founders at the time, individuals who lived in our country at the time the Second Amendment was adopted, would have found that this law to be constitutional and within the protection of um, the government's powers, um, despite the Second Amendment. And this has just fundamentally changed what's going on in the courts across the country. And to this day, the law is changing by the day. Um, more gun laws were struck down in the three months after Bruin was decided than in the 10 years after Heller was decided. And laws that have fundamentally been deemed constitutional for instance, a Fifth, decision, fifth Circuit decision um, in Rahimi recently decided that a gun violence um, prohibitor saying that individuals who are subject to uh, domestic violence protective orders is unconstitutional. And so individuals who have an order for protection against them in the Fifth Circuit now cannot be prohibited from purchasing and possessing firearms. Um, in this context, the Attorney General is using his powers to truly be innovative in how we address gun violence in our state. And he's gonna share some examples now of the work that he's doing. Thank you, Megan. And let's give a hand to Megan, everybody. Also, it's good to be back at the U. Um, I sat in this uh, auditorium three years straight, and I never thought I'd really appreciate it, but now I really do. It's awesome. <laughs> and then also, Dean, uh, you are uh, an amazing leader, and it's been such a pleasure to work with you over the years, and I want to wish you all the best in uh, all, your, all your future endeavors. I know you're going to be great at it, because you were great at this, and uh, just make sure you get somebody half as good as you have been, <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll be well served by that. Um, so as the Attorney General, I tell my staff and I tell the public every day that it's our job to help people afford their lives and live with dignity, safety, and respect. Uh, that's what we consider to be our mission. That's what we work hard on every day. And safety and dignity and respect uh, are impossible to achieve if you have to live your life in fear that you could be shot. Um, this is a very serious concern that nobody should uh, diminish uh, if you consider that in, we've had over 100 mass shootings in the United States this year alone, including February 25th, we had one in St. Paul where two people were killed and another three were shot uh, outside of a senior center. And so this is the world that we live in. It is... Uh, and of course, uh, our Supreme Court um, has abandoned the idea that a local community can operate to protect itself. That's irrelevant, right, Megan? Our need to be protected from gun violence is not in the consideration that the Supreme Court, in their analysis at all, uh, which, is, which is startling. In fact, we have to figure out what, what was going on in, what, 1789 or something like that? So that's where we are. We absolutely need more people thinking about the public interest, public safety. We have, we need, uh, and we need lawyers to be thinking about that. We need law students to be thinking about that. One of the cases that we started recently uh, involves challenging um, a gun retailer's uh, decision to sell to a gun trafficker who then in turn uh, sold to some people who use guns to 
wreak mayhem on our streets. Uh, you know, the uh, Fleet Farm, uh, I believe, I argue, negligently sold, negligently entrusted, uh, you know, uh, the sale of firearms uh, to people who would uh, traffic those guns. And then, um, you know, I'll just say that uh, I think it was September 2021, uh, one of the guns, uh, turned, one of these guns that I'm talking about turned up in a horrific crime. 26-year-old young woman, a veterinary technician, loved animals, was her passion. Her name was Markeisha Wiley. She was out partying with friends right down there in St. Paul on off West 7th, right outside of, you know, downtown. Uh, and somebody opened up with one of these uh, guns and, uh, well, put it like this, she lost her life. Um, and one of the guns turned up on the scene. In another situation with one of these Fleet Farm guns, there was literally a six-year-old boy, little guy, very, very, very uh, sharp young fellow, who was playing in the yard one day and uh, sees something kind of curious. He kind of nudges it and he says, that, that's a gun, but it's not a toy because it's heavy, not like plastic. He goes to tell his dad and his dad says, son, that in fact is a gun. And they turn it into the local police department. Now, I uh, just thank God that that boy was not, was six and not 16. Because if he were 16, he might say, whoa, this is cool. Uh, but what do my friends would think about this? As opposed to what would dad think about this? And it could turn out very tragically. So we started our lawsuit uh, because we came to the conclusion that Fleet Farm um, sale uh, to the individual, uh, you know, about 37 guns in, a, in a, only a number of a few weeks. And, he, and this was not the only uh, retailer who did this. Um, so we may not be done in the, for the nearest term. Uh, sold, sold this gun one, in, one, in one purchase, in one transaction. Uh, there's videotape from the store where this guy is literally walking out, holding up two Glocks. You can see him from the video from the back gesturing to somebody in the parking lot. Uh, and um, even store clerks uh, were alarmed. When the police, uh, you know, went to, uh, in, after the shooting incident, the police went to figure out, uh, you know, they, with the, they got the tracing, the, the serial number, traced it back to the store, traced it back to the sale. Uh, and when they w arrived at uh, this individual's house who sold these guns, who, sold, who bought and then sold those guns, they couldn't, they couldn't find any guns. And there's a reason. He sold them all. And so literally the, uh, the, 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 the retailer is profiting from, gun, from illegal gun sales. And one term that you all are probably familiar with that I'll raise up now is this idea of a straw purchaser. What is a straw purchaser? Somebody who has a clean record and is lawfully allowed to buy a gun and then buys that gun, but then turns around and, and, and either dis and distributes it to somebody who's not lawfully allowed to have that gun. Sometimes they do it for money. Sometimes they do it because they're in relationship with somebody who asked them to do this. And maybe even there's an argument that they're coerced in some cases, but that, that straw purchaser is a person who uses their clean record to obtain a gun to then turn it over to somebody who should not and is not lawfully allowed to possess that gun. Um, I can tell you that one of the big barriers that you will face if you're involved in, in, this, um, in the clinic is the Protecting um, the Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, PLACA. So you all should write that down and read the statute carefully. Read it for what it prohibits. Read it for what it doesn't prohibit, because it doesn't prohibit every lawsuit. It means that you cannot sell, you cannot take legal action against the manufacturer retailer for the illegal act of some third party who they sell to. But it does mean, but it does not protect uh, these companies from breach of warranty, breach of contract, defects, negligent entrustment, nuisance, um, consumer laws. In fact, there I think there's ample space to. Uh, bring forth cases on the violation of consumer laws. Because if somebody told you, 
This is going to make you safer. You're going to be safer. Not only are you going to be safer, you're actually going to be more manly and desirable. Yeah, they market with that stuff. And yet that same thing is demonstrably provable as making your home less safe. Then I think you've been lied to as a consumer. In fact, we can show that that gun is more likely to hurt someone in your household than to protect your household. So these are things that, so there, so we should, one of the things that I think the, the, uh, the, clinic, the clinic will dispel is this idea that there is some complete and absolute wall to holding these uh, folks accountable. Nope, there's cracks in it. Now, I also want to close by saying this. Um, I'm not sure that this clinic is taking on a controversial subject. Maybe in the eyes of folks in the media who look for controversy and, just, and, and everything. I mean, sometimes the media will report, well, yes, climate change is happening. On the other hand, there's people who say it's not. It's kind of like that in my mind. When 90% of Americans say that there should at least be criminal background checks, when, well, when, when 75 and 60% and high numbers say that, you know, domestic abusers shouldn't have guns and you know, the, the American public actually is on our side here. I think that um, it might be less controversial in the eyes of the average person than in the eyes of some people in the media who always want to two sides everything. And let me finally just say that litigation is one tool. It's an effective, powerful tool. But as a lawyer and a law student, you're not confined to that. You can also look at legislative fixes. You can also use administrative fixes. And then beyond those two kind of legalistic, those, you know, those three legalistic things, litigation, administrative fixes, and legislation, beyond those, there's still a lot of public awareness that needs to happen. Because I think that if, you, you know, if we've had 100 mass shootings since January 1st of this year, and if we're averaging around 200 mass shootings over the last 300-some days, that I think that it is safe to say that some of the public might feel there's just nothing we can do. And so there's an important public education function. One of the reasons we brought our lawsuit against Fleet Farm, and we may bring some more in the future, is because we want the public to know that these guys are not untouchable. We want the public to know it, that there are things that can be done. And we want them to be aware of it, because if we're ever going to um, right-size uh, placa, and what I mean is repeal, repeal it or change it, it's got to start with people believing that it can be changed. And so for everyone who believes that this is uh, an important uh, cause, I, I thank you for it. I, I think there's room for everyone here. We need to, we need, maybe we need to have a conversation with the arts community. I mean that. Lawyers talking to artists, that'd be a strange conversation. But we need people to imagine. And I believe there's some poems and some plays and some songs that might move the public mind to help create that create the atmosphere we need to make real and meaningful change. Lawyers should never believe that they are the VIP in the middle of every social justice or, or, or change, right? Thurgood Marshall knew that if he didn't have the support of people, he could not move the cause of civil rights forward. Ruth Bader Ginsburg knew the same thing. And we need to consider the public, uh, the, public, the public part of this uh, effort as well. So I'll pass it over, and I know there's a bunch of questions. Are we gonna go back and forth on those, or, yeah? Yeah, I'll, we'll take some questions at the end, and next we'll hear from But I'll Chris pass Renz. it to Christopher, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, as I was introduced, my name's Chris Renz. I'm the prosecutor for the airport, and uh, Megan asked me to come here, I think, in part, one, I deal with guns on a fairly regular basis in advising the police department. They are at the airport in three different ways, primarily. One, uh, there are 
a lot of uh, guns that get sent through or mailed through the airports bigger than just the airport you're at. So there's a lot of uh, transporting of guns. And two, uh, there are a lot of guns still that come through uh, the scanners. Uh, so, uh, and then three, we are a general jurisdiction. So we also have general uh, crime or uh, stops by officers who are finding uh, guns uh, in vehicles, et cetera. And coming out of that, we had a case, uh, State versus Hatch. That's the last time I think that the Minnesota Supreme Court has examined uh, the Second Amendment challenge to the permitting statute uh, that we have in our state. And I think, uh, well, I know there was some discussion about the difference between uh, what was the New York statute versus a lot of other uh, places. Minnesota is a shell issue permit state. So the uh, statute says that the sheriff must issue you a permit so long as you're 21, you've had training, and you aren't one of a number of prohibited categories. And so uh, the amount of people who have decided that these kind of laws, which seem very straightforward at first glance, are challengeable is heavily on the rise. I'm excited that Megan's doing this clinic because the belief uh, on the uh, kind of the pro-gun right side about what is acceptable is only expanding. The use of guns and the amount of people with guns uh, just generally out in the public is alarmingly increasing. Uh, so as the prosecutor for the airport, one of the things we look at is how many firearms are getting caught in scanners. It was 4,400 in 2019. Then after the pandemic, uh, this last year, it was 6,542 guns. That's just people who brought them through the scanners, which everyone should know is not a place you can have a gun. But it is so attached to these individuals or it is handled in such a nonchalant manner that this is happening. And 80% of those guns were loaded when they came through the scanner. Uh, so we are seeing an increase in challenges, uh, both constitutional as well as setting trials that we never thought we'd see tried because they're pretty straightforward, that all kind of are based in this idea that you are not going to tell somebody that they cannot have a gun. I think in the case after, in the wake of Bruin, I think that uh, there was some uh, emboldening, and uh, I don't know exactly what all is behind it, but... It, it seems unnecessary. I don't, there was a time, uh, Megan alluded to it, when there was kind of this balance uh, where, yes, there was a right to guns, but there was also some pretty uh, plain sense uh, restrictions on them. But we're seeing that eroded more and more. Bruin uh, probably being the most uh, recent, most impressive effort on, on the other side with that. Absolutely. So thank you both for your comments. I think these panelists really gave good insight into two ways that the legal system operates to prevent gun violence or can operate to prevent gun violence. One being the types of affirmative litigation that the Attorney General was talking about, which is using courts, using the law to encourage individuals and companies who are working within um, the gun rights side um, manufacturers and sellers of guns, um, encouraging them to do things they should already be doing through the use of, through the use of consumer protection law, tort law. Um, there's a real opportunity, as the Attorney General said, to, despite PLACA, bring litigation to fundamentally change the way that the industry operates to ensure that people who are not allowed to have guns do not ultimately have the option to buy them and to possess them. And then um, the Attorney General also has a very important job of defending the gun laws of our state, which as Chris alluded to, there is a huge amount of effort from gun rights side in challenging the gun laws of our state in the wake of Bruin, which has only um, become more well-funded and taken on stronger arguments in the wake of Bruin. Um, and so the Attorney General and the clinic are partnering on another case um, defending one of Minnesota's gun laws that prevents um, individuals between the ages of 18 and 20 from carrying in public. And that's a situation where um, 
We know that social science shows us that individuals in that age range commit more homicides, are responsible for more firearms deaths. And there are real reasons why the state of Minnesota chose to say that individuals who are between the ages of 18 and 20 should not be permitted to carry in public in our state. And so we're working on that case. And as the Attorney General also said, there are legislative plans going through currently the Minnesota State House and the Senate. And if any of those laws um, do become law, if any of those bills do become law, we will hopefully be partnering with the Attorney General's office to defend those laws. And Chris's role has been really, I think, exciting and unique in terms of someone in private practice who is actively engaged in this type of work, um, in his work as a prosecutor for the airport, and argued what is perhaps, you know, the most important case on the Second Amendment in the state of Minnesota thus far, and will be used as precedent um, the next time that there is a gun law that goes before the Minnesota Supreme Court. So we have a few questions, and then hopefully we'll have um, a few minutes for some questions from the audience. Um, the first one, in a country where there are more guns than people, and firearm fatalities are rising year over year. Are you optimistic that these legal remedies will make a meaningful difference? Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, and part of it is because there's such a large number of people who know there's, this situation we're in is untenable. It's just we can't, we can't keep going like this. And um, it has effect on our society. Uh, it, unless we organize to, to arrest the situation that we're in. You know, I mean, what is the effect on a society where anywhere you go, at any time, any place, gunfire could break out? That is, that is no way to live. And if it does break out, all it means is people's responses are going to make the situation even worse because then they're going to do what? Audience participation. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So this is a we've got so we've got to grab this thing. And I think there is a growing uh, sense that change must come. And people uh, I tell you this, when I was in Congress, when I started, um, it was sort of a um, it was sort of a, a sign of a, I don't know, you could if you stood up against the gun lobby, that was sort of like defying a, a, an existing power. Right. No, it's not. People, they, they passed out these little F, little, like the letter F, you know, saying, hey, look, if you got an F from the NRA, wear this, you know, on your lapel. And people, you saw these little red Fs all over the place. That is signaling that folks are losing their fear of the NRA. In fact, the NRA and the gun lobby itself is, is, is actually a lot weaker than it used to be. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the past 20, 30 years where they've worked to pack the courts have, uh, are paying benefits to them now in the form of Bruin uh, and even Heller, in my view. Um, and so I do hope that uh, some of you law students out there think about being a judge one day. We need, we need good judges. We need fair judges. Um, and it is funny to me that when I was a law student, what we heard all the time was these judicial activists. We got to stop the judicial activism. Well, when you start inventing private rights to own a gun out of whole cloth, when you start saying, and when you're a small government person, local government person, and now you're going to have a national shall issue policy without regard to local considerations, things have truly changed. And that's like the essence of, of activism, judicial activism, in my view. So in terms of um, optimism, I am optimistic. You know, the, the parents of Sandy Hook, the young people of uh, Marjorie Stone um, uh, Douglas. Uh, I mean, there there are the, there's a real movement. Uh, every town, you know, this clinic. There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Thank you, Chris. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I share uh, the optimism, and I appreciate greatly the Attorney General's creativity with uh, kind of the statutes he's attacking, but. You know, I, I find it slightly concerning that it's it's things like that or like merely permitting statutes. That's kind of all we have, and it's really step one. And like Attorney General Ellison said, until there's some legislation, until we get some federal uh, legislation on what's allowed, I just think these are 
they're helpful, but they are very incomplete solutions. So I'm optimistic, but I have a lot of concern about what's still there. Yeah, I share the same perspective. I'm certainly optimistic, but I recognize that in a lot of ways the deck is stacked against us. Um, in the affirmative litigation space, we have PLACA, which is a real ban on a lot of litigation, and it really requires creativity and more people working on it. So part of the reason I started this clinic is to bring more people into that conversation and um, to get more students realizing that in the face of a societal problem that can often make you feel absolutely powerless, like there are things you can do with your law degree, with your skills that can make a real difference in, in this problem that feels so big and impossible sometimes. Um, and of course now we have Bruin, which is again a real barrier for what government can do. And so we need smart, creative people working on these issues. My students are literally looking at Justice of the Peace manuals from 1791 <laughs> to support Minnesota's gun laws, to support domestic violence laws that we know really save lives. Um, and that work is so important and, and we really need more lawyers working on it and more law schools working on it. Um, so I'm optimistic as well, um, but also practical in, in knowing that we have to take these considerations into account as we prepare our strategies going forward. So I'm going to have Chris answer this next one. He defended Minnesota's permitting system before Bruin was out. Um, so I was wondering what your perspective is on how Bruin will shape Minnesota's gun laws um, and how you think that Minnesota's laws will, will stack up and under a Bruin analysis. Uh, I think it's undetermined. I have concerns coming out of the, some of the Fifth Circuit and other decisions that, that you were uh, describing. That said, uh, the person who appealed, they appealed Hatch, the Supreme Court case that I was on in favor of the gun law. They appealed to the Supreme Court right before New York, or we're calling it Bruin, right before Bruin came out and it was not accepted for uh, certiorari. And they had accepted a lot of cases from a lot of states and stacked them up behind Bruin to be decided. So that gives me some hope uh, that maybe they don't consider it in the same ilk. There's also, as you know, Kavanaugh made a, a concurrence that Roberts joined. It's unclear to me how the two-person concurrence works in terms of precedent. Uh, and they said specifically that the shell issue permitting states will be, are in the bounds of the Second Amendment. But then we have things like the Fifth Circuit, and so it's a little hard to determine. And I, I actually almost wonder whether uh, Thomas was not hoping to get five to totally ban those as well. He couldn't, and that's why uh, Kavanaugh and Roberts had their own concurrence. Um, but I think that with the shell issue nature of, of our statute and the Kavanaugh concurrence, I'd like to think that at least the permitting statute for now is safe, uh, except maybe for what you're seeing in the Fifth Circuit. And we do, we are in a very conservative federal circuit. The Eighth Circuit is not a liberal circuit. Attorney General, do you have other thoughts on that? No, I think Chris covered it just fine. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to defend them. <laughs> I'll say that much. I'm excited to work with my students to defend these laws. Um, it's, it's a real opportunity for these students to work in a field that is changing by the day. Um, and if there are first or second year law students, please consider thinking about the clinic for next year. We're gonna be doing really exciting stuff, um, including um, possibly going to the Eighth Circuit on the Worth case. Um, the Eighth Circuit is hearing a ghost guns case tomorrow morning. Um, so we'll get some insight into how the Eighth Circuit might um, deal with the issue of the Second Amendment and firearms laws. Um, but like Chris said, it, it's changing by the day. The concurrence that Chris mentioned, um, written by Kavanaugh and joined by Roberts, when Bruin came out, we were hoping that that would give some support to the idea that gun regulation and the Second Amendment right can go hand in hand. That's basically what that concurrence said. But as we're seeing these decisions come out across the country, um, it hasn't had as much impact as I would have hoped, um, the concurrence in, in tempering um, the way that courts are looking at this. A lot of courts are striking down gun laws. Um, and I think 
that things will shake out a little bit more as more of these cases go up to the federal circuits. Um, we just recently had an 11th Circuit decision that upheld a Florida law saying that um, individuals between the ages of 18 and 20 cannot purchase firearms. And so I think we will be seeing more of that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how things progress as more and more circuit decisions come out and, and also if the Supreme Court takes another case. Um, there's a lot of debate within the field about when the Supreme Court will take another Second Amendment case. Um, after Heller, it took you know well over 10 years, um, but most people are thinking it's probably gonna be sooner than that. Um, there's just a lot of havoc in the lower courts right now. Um, and some people think that the Supreme Court is going to want to issue um, some more guidance on how the Bruin decision should be implemented. And, and there's some potential that justices like Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Roberts um, may have concerns with the Fifth Circuit opinion saying that domestic violence um, and people who have been subject to a domestic violence order for protection should be able to possess guns. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, both, both our other panelists talked about how strong the gun rights lobby is. Um, and certainly I personally hear <laughs> a lot of criticisms about the clinic um, and coming at this from a gun violence prevention lens. And, and I, of course, agree with the Attorney General that I don't think this is controversial. Um, I, I view myself as a lawyer, um, so I work within the law. I'm not here to overturn the Second Amendment. I'm here to work within the Supreme Court precedents and work within Minnesota's laws um, to prevent gun violence. Um, and that shouldn't be controversial because nobody wants gun violence, even gun rights. People don't want gun violence either. We just differ on what solutions we think is gonna solve the problem. Um, but one question for this panel is, how do you respond to critics who say that the work that we're doing is um, restricting a constitutional right um, and, and not doing what, what the law should do or what law schools should do or what the people's attorney should do? How do you guys respond to that or think about that? I ignore them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, just to be real straight about it, I mean, look, uh, the way the law is written is as a collective right. It's, it talks about state militias, well-regulated militias. Um, the law is not designed to operate the way that the Supreme Court has construed it. I don't, you know, for the moment they have, they have the final word, but, you know, uh, Supreme Court opinions change. They get overruled, they get overturned, they get limited. And if we just accept it the way it is, then probably it will get worse before it gets better. So I like the idea of challenging, you know, uh, what they have to say. Um, look, what I'm, I'm trying to keep people from getting killed. What are they trying to do? I mean, it's, and, and so, I mean, I've, I, I believe, I. I personally, if I was on the legislative floor, I couldn't question people's motives, but I'm not, so I do. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I don't think we're debating the right to bear arms. We're debating the right to sell arms. And, that's, and, that's, and this is, it makes money for some people, and uh, they don't want that to spick it to turn off. And the worse it gets, the more money they make, because and now people think, well, if everybody has a gun, I better get one too. And so, you know, um, I guess I just, uh, I'm just, I don't, I just don't worry about what the critics have to, have to say. I worry more about, I worry more about, more about what uh, the, the, the theater goer has to say or what someone who has a loved one who is despondent and depressed and the fact that they can go out and get a gun and end it all before they even get a shot at treatment. I worry about that. I worry about the school kids thinking, Hey, you know, are we going to have a school shooting here? We were at uh, White Bear Lake School. Was that, was that the school we were at? Matamidi. And here are these four or five little teenagers afraid for what could happen at their school. So when you have a teenager look you in the eye and says, I'm afraid that, I, that there could be a shooting at my school, and I don't think these drills they make us do really are where to start to solve the problem. Maybe we need to have fewer guns out there. I think I'm with the teenagers on that one. And so, um, you know, you, you just gotta, so that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I just think like almost all things has just gone too far one way. 
Um, I was struck, I work with a lot of law enforcement officers who uh, are almost all gun carriers, whether they're for their job or otherwise, and to a person are all in favor of common sense gun restriction because they see what happens when you don't have that. And so uh, in discussions with them and, and knowing <coughs> you know, that we're pretty far down the line, I don't know how far you can put Heller back in the box, I just think there's a way to have them both balance out. Uh, that is, the, the people who shouldn't be disqualified can have certain kinds of guns for limited purpose. But there need to be also some parameters on that, just like all things in life and society. You go too far one way, and uh, it, it usually doesn't work out real well. Can I add one more thing? Yes. So, he, he, so I like, I think I could stop you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if we just had people following the existing rules, we we we'd actually be we'd actually have problems, but we'd have fewer of them than we have now. We, I mean, we're suing, we're not suing Fleet Farm because they sell guns. We're suing Fleet Farm because they negligently are selling guns because they're not obeying the rules that exist now. Like when you, when you shared that you saw 4,000, then 6,000 guns that are caught. I mean, if there's one place everybody knows you can't bring a gun, it's to an airport. And yet, some people haven't gotten that memo yet. Now, if they're going to, either knowingly or unwittingly try to get, you know, get a gun through like that. And by the way, there are legal and lawful ways to transport a gun by airplane, right? Hey, you can put it in your check luggage. To right, clear it. Yeah. right. But they, they, that's not, that doesn't work for them. <laughs> so at this point, um, you know, we've, we've got a, a, are the folks who criticize us for trying to bring forth gun sense uh, saying we shouldn't even enforce the law as it exists now? Are they saying we're anti-gun because we won't let them have 6,000 guns on the airport? I mean, I would think that they'd be on our side on this one. But they're not. The critics, they flow, and they, and they, and they, and they don't stop. And so I would just say that, it, you know, if we could just get to where we're supposed to be in terms of observance of the existing law. And then here's the other thing. A lot of gun trafficking is a result of negligent gun sales, but also a lot of it is just some thieves will just open up car doors because they know that there's a fair chance that somebody has a gun tucked up under their seat. There's a lot of guns acquired that way. And so it's important for to just to teach people about gun safety, you know, so and I and I don't think why any good faith gun seller wouldn't want that. And what's wrong with having a gun lock on your on your on your gun? or putting it in a locker. Full disclosure, I own guns. They're locked up. If you, get, if you come to my house and try to, I, good luck getting into that locker because I can't open the thing half the time. <laughs> but I mean, it's, but so we're not talking about th this argument that is a specious argument that you're anti-gun is absolutely untrue. And it's not made in good faith. Um, and uh, really, it's marketing because a few years ago, the gun sellers said, you know what? Our main market is the sportsman, and emphasis on men, <laughs> you know? And uh, there's a whole lot more guns out there to be sold. We need to switch it over to home defense and then open up a female market in gun sales through fear and the macho young teenager, teenager market isn't this cool? Look at the great, look at this cool thing I got. And, and so that, so really what we're talking about is a shift in marketing. And so I, I think that really is it. And then I will tell you, um, this, uh, this, this thing about, uh, the government is, is going to take our guns away because this is a bulwark of tyranny. That's another marketing ploy to the paranoid. And so I just think it's important to keep it all in mind. These, uh, so much of the critiques that you hear are not honestly intended. And as the NRA was saying that the government tyranny is going to come to get you, they got caught because of, you know, a, 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 a Russian national had infiltrated the NRA. Are y'all familiar? Do you think I'm making this up? I'm like, who, who, who's taking over? Who, 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 who's the security threat? 
And so I just think I, it's a lot of these criticisms, I will just say the reason I ignore them is because I don't think that many of them are, are sincerely made. And I don't think you should. And I think that if you get in this field, you know, you got to, you got to, you know, immunize yourself from a lot of the unfounded criticism that you're going to face. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you to everyone who's here participating in this event. Um, thanks again to my funders, Joyce and McKnight Foundations. And um, please think about joining our clinic. Come and talk to me if any students have questions. Um, there's lots of ways to get involved here at the law school and later in your careers um, as both of these alumni show. Um, so thank you so much to everyone who's here today and um, have a great day. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.